Carlos Boozer talking Western Conference Finals, 2000s basketball, power forwards in the West, and his new book, Every Shot Counts, out now wherever books are sold, promoting it here on the podcast. Round Ball Roundup, utahjazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz, NMLS number 3112, Equal Housing Lender. When you hear Carlos Boozer's name, you're talking about one of the most underappreciated power forwards of his era. I was looking at the All-NBA teams, and he played probably at the peak of the power forward position. Because there was always going to be a slot for LeBron James. LeBron's going to have one of those six spots. Then you have Dirk. Then you have Kevin Garnett. Then you have Chris Bosh. He played perfectly in the spot where all-star appearances, all-NBA selections, it's all going to go to someone else. And he had his year in 2007 when this team goes to the Western Conference Finals. He plays the best of his career here in Utah. There's a great argument if those Chicago teams are better, but he played his best here in Utah, and he has best Western Conference Finals run with the Jazz. He was averaging, and I, I looked this up, he was averaging during that run an absurd 23 points, 12 rebounds. So every single game, he was marking a double-double. He wins a series for the Jazz in Houston, Game 7, first round, the Rockets are done. He Got Jeff Van Gundy fired. I think ultimately it was AK uh, because he hit a three that he hadn't hit in his entire life. But still, the point being, Carlos Boozer, 23 points, 12 rebounds during that run. Shout out Pot of Fame for the stat. But since 2000, only the elite of the elite have done 23 and 12 over three rounds. And it's Joker, it's Giannis, very much understandable in those. Shaq, KG, Tim Duncan, and Carlos Boozer. Three rounds, averaging 23 points, 12 rebounds. He was at the tip-top of his game in 2007. And mind you, he had stuff going on with his family. His son had sickle cell, and his wife was carrying twins. And he was going back and forth from here to Miami. Knowing that human element and seeing Jerry Sloan as a human as well. I never got to meet Jerry, but knowing what Jerry was all about, being hard-nosed, being a player. Carlos knew that he was a player, knew he was the original bull. But for Jerry at that time to understand exactly what Carlos is going through and to support him and to be okay with him going back and forth, feeling guilty that he isn't there enough and still keeping him focused because this this basketball opportunity is how you afford your family to live and to do this. He's an amazing coach. And amazing that he was able to get not only John and Carl, but Darren and Carlos, the Western Conference Finals. Say that again. 
Darren Williams and Carlos Boozer to the Western Conference Finals. That's wild. Five stars. Nice reviews. That's all I ask of you. Let others know that you're listening to the podcast. Next time we talk, everybody can watch the basketball. Sunday, Clippers, preseason basketball. First opportunity to look at this squad, see what the Keontae George hype machine's all about. People are high on him. You even hear Carlos Boozer giving him shout out. So we'll be back after basketball's been played. But now, please enjoy Carlos Boozer on the podcast, Round Ball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. that time, you know, we were trying to figure out what we were doing because we kept getting all these calls from USA Basketball that was like two weeks away from, you know, the Olympics getting started. So we just said, hey, it's, it's a chance to <laughs> be a part of Team USA where the uniform, where USA across your chest was does not come along very often for, for athletes. So I took the opportunity and it was a, it was a separated group. You had the older guys like Allen Iverson, Stephon Marbury, Tim Duncan, Lamar Odom, and Sean Marion. And you had us younger guys like myself, LeBron, Amari Sotomayor, D. Wade, and Carmelo. We didn't play a lot. The older guys played quite a bit. We didn't get a really chance to contribute. So even though we were excited to be a part of the team, we didn't get a chance to, to really uh, help our team win. And so it, it felt very segregated, I would say. Um, as far as the signing goes, you know, Cleveland, I had a great time in Cleveland. I thought LeBron was going to uh, do some incredible things, especially after his rookie year. But when they took away my option, I had, you know, three or four teams reaching out to my, to, to me and my, my team, um, one to recruit me. And the only place I wanted to go was Utah. You know, I was a huge Carl Malone fan growing up. Um, and obviously Jerry Sloan, hall of fame coach, couldn't wait to be a part of that organization. Uh, Larry Miller was a terrific owner, did a great job by us. So when I got down there to Utah, I was blown away by obviously the beauty, you know, I grew up in Juneau, Alaska. So, Salt Lake City, Utah, Park City, Utah, Utah in general resembles a lot of what I grew up around in Alaska. Well, how quickly do you meet Carl and Carl gives you advice? Because Jerry Sloan is an interesting guy to meet as far as a head coach and to play under. But Carl has that experience and was in a similar situation with the franchise when he was here. Yeah, Carl took me under his wing a little bit right away, gave me great advice taught me some great moves, gave me his perspective on what he went through as a, as a jazz player uh, living in Utah, on and off the court. And at the same time, I mean, this guy was 6'9", built like a Greek god, was just dominant in the NBA. Um, probably the best power forward never to win the championship. And uh, even that being said, one of the best power forwards of all time. So, so definitely somebody I emulated, someone I wanted to play similar to. You could never really fill a, you know, Carl Malone shoes. Um, and me and me and Darren had our own version of the pick and roll, but uh, we had a good time. What were those first two years like without Darren uh, ahead of of him joining the team and really establishing himself as the starting point guard? Because you dealt with injury the first couple of years here in Utah. Yeah, I was good, man. I mean, I think we had a good team in place. We were just missing like a, a starting point guard. You know, AK forty seven was great. Memo Kerr was knocking down threes. We did some a good job in the draft, drafting Ronnie Brewer and Paul Millsap. And then obviously we got D. Will, and that changed the whole dynamic. We needed a guy that could score, that had the vision, that had the toughness to him, and D. Will filled that role for us. So when we got him, 
our whole team just took off because that was really our missing piece. How did you see Darren take to the team that rookie year? Because initially he's not starting. Yeah. He's ha having a little bit of a combative nature with Jerry Sloan. But ultimately, in the end, he puts his head down and starts starting that second year. Yeah, I mean, it was tough. I think we all knew in the, in the locker room that he was our best point guard. I mean, it was clear from day one that he was more talented uh, than the guys we had in front of him. Um, and him and Jerry had their own conversation or their own relationship. But I want to say it was maybe 46 games in to his rookie year, he finally started to start. And you could see the dynamic. Every time he came in the game, the pace picked up, the, the focus picked up. Our team play was much better. It's like playing playing with your starting quarterback finally. So for us, it was it was huge having D-Will out there. You made the game so much easier for the rest of us. How quickly do you develop chemistry with a guy like that? Oh, immediately. I mean, we had as soon as we drafted him, got to practice, we could all tell right away that our one-two punch was going to be me and him right away. And I think the fans got a chance to see that throughout the course of his rookie year. And then obviously his second year, we just took off to a whole other stratosphere. And at this time reading the book, hearing how your family situation was happening with your son with sickle cell. Yeah. I don't think people know about the human side of Jerry Sloan and how he was able to enable you to go out and work every night for your family. What did he say to you during that time and how did he help you along and keeping your head down and, and working for your family so that they would be supported? Yeah, Coach Sloan was Jerry was amazing for me. Like he knew I told him what was going on with my son. I told Larry the same thing, Larry Miller. And both of them right away said family first. And whatever we can do to help, uh, doctors or, you know, scheduling or whatever we can do. Um, they were terrific for me. I was going back and forth um from Utah to see my family, to see my son, make sure he was okay. Um, to make sure CC was good. Um obviously she was also carrying the twins at one point. So there was a lot going on in the Boozer household. And my jazz family stood up for me. They were there for me. You know, Larry Miller was there. Coach Sloan was there. My teammates were there. I was getting calls in Texas all the time from everybody in the jazz organization. So um, that's a family for me. That feels like home for me. And, you know, when you when you go through something at, at, at home and your organization steps up for you, just it, it, it builds that bond even more. And I had that with, with Jerry and Larry. You had a really good line about it, um in the book, we're all narcissists until we hold our first child. <laughs> that seemed like a perfect encapsulation of that and how even though you're here, you, you still feel selfish that you're working with this family back behind in Miami, but the Jazz were allowing you to go back and forth. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. You know, obviously, until you have kids, everything you do is about yourself. You know, how do I build this or how do I build that or what do I want to accomplish and then you have a kid and you're like, wow, everything I want to do, I want to do it for them. You know, I want to make my son proud. I'm going to make my sons proud. I want to make my kids proud, my daughter proud. Like your whole dynamic as a human being changes because now you got to be more careful. You want to make sure you're around. You want to make sure that you're there to help teach them the things that you learned from your parents and from mentors and what have you. So yeah, I mean, that's, and, and the great thing about it was I, I, I had them while I was playing for the jazz. So they were they pretty much they were all conceived in Utah, even if they were born in Miami. <laughs> Utah, listen, Utah is a great place to start a family.
Yes, we we can tell. There are lots of kids that would go to jazz games and lots of kids made from jazz games. Now let me tell you about First Colony Mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders. Not only do they process mortgages, they also underwrite fund and close mortgage loans all in-house. Their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs. Just check them out. First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz. was that year though in 2007 for you like because you break out this is an all-star year this is a time where you're really at the peak of your powers with the Utah Jazz yeah I was just locked in man I had so much going on and I just threw myself into my craft you know I was at the gym almost 24 7 you know I was going there early mornings late nights it was a place I could clear my mind but also work on my game and I think you know you know when you're going through a process like you're going through school you're going through class I said, all of a sudden, everything clicks. 2007 was that year for me as I was going through my basketball journey and trying to figure out um, how to submit myself in the Western Conference. Yeah, I remember, like, I'm playing Kevin Garnett one night, Tim Duncan one night, Dirk Nowitzki one night, Rasheed Wallace one night, Amari one night. Like, the list, every night, Chris Webber, like, the list was incredible of the players I had to compete against at the power forward spot in the Western Conference on a nightly basis. And it's sink or swim. You either got to stand up to the challenge and, and level up or you'll get eaten alive. So I just continue to work on my game and get better and get better and get better. And in 2007, everything clicked. I was going to say that that 2000s era, you might have played at the peak of the power forward position because Tim Duncan, KG, Dirk, like the, the position at that point was so relied upon that you almost had to have a good power forward to be a good team at that. Yeah, it was. It probably was the peak of the power forward position in the NBA. You think about it, every team was loaded from Jermaine O'Neal, Rasheed Wallace. I mentioned the Kevin Garnett's and Tim Duncan's and, and Dirk Nowitzki's who are Hall of Famers, Chris Webber, Amari, like Zach Randolph, David West. There were so many great power forwards in that era. You had to have uh, something to compete with. And I, I filled that role for the Jazz, but we had a group of guys. Melano Kerr was a terrific power forward. Paul Millsap came off the bench for us. He ended up being a four-time All-Star in Atlanta later on in his career. Like we, it, the Jazz do a great job of scouting talent. That's why I almost find those All-Star appearances even more impressive yeah. for how deep that the position was. Someone looked this up because it, the stats that you put up in the playoffs were unreal. 23 points, 12 rebounds. How many people since 2000 have been able to do it? It's you. It's Shaquille O'Neal. It's Tim Duncan. It's the Joker, it's Giannis, and Kevin Garnett. That's it. That's a pretty elite group to be around when it comes to 23 points, 12 boards, going three rounds in the playoffs. Because somebody can do it for one round, but doing it three rounds, yeah. that's pretty impressive. Nah, thank you very much. It, it's 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 crazy how they say the cream rises to the top. Like when you, when you, iron sharpens iron. So the better competition you play against, the better version of yourself should pull out in. I'm telling you, playing against Paul Gasol and, you know, those guys, Lamar Odom and Dirk and those guys, 
in the playoffs, Kenya Martin in the, in the Western Conference, like it brought the best out of me, you know, because every night, if you didn't bring your A game, you were going to get embarrassed in front of your mama, your, your, your wife and your kids and everybody else who was watching. So you got to bring your A game in the Western Conference. How'd you prepare for a first playoff experience? Because none of you had been there before. The only person was Derek Fisher on that team. And it's the Houston Rockets, a really good team with T-Mac and Yao Ming. Now, I was nervous, man. I mean, I was excited. You get those like those butterflies in your stomach because it's the first time uh, you go out there and you, you're playing something that you've been watching your whole life. I've been watching the playoffs my entire life, so we finally get to the playoffs. And I was nervous. I'm going to be out. The first game, I had a horrible game. I think I was like six for a 1,000 from the field. And, you know, I'm calling all my mentors and Coach K and Barkley and all these guys, Carl Malone, that I look up to. And I'm like, guys, I'm, like, I'm, I feel like I just had the worst game of my career. And it was the biggest game of my career. And they're like, Boos, we all been there, man. Just keep attacking. Go at it. Your game two will be much better. So I came back in the second game and dominated the second game, even though we lost the game, I found my confidence. I found my swag. I found my, my pitch. Like I think I had 41 points in the second game of that game or something like that. Um, and then we get into a battle. We go down 0-2. We come back to Utah. We tie the series up at 2-2. And then we split the next two games. And so now we're in a game seven on the road against T-Mac and Yao in Houston. And we hadn't won a game in Houston. So it was like a, it was, it was a big deal. And man, did we put on a show, man. And game seven, you go off for 35 and 14, including a fourth quarter that was pretty big. Did you feel the pressure of a game seven? What was the mentality of the team heading into that game? Yeah. I mean, for me, I was just locked in, you know, it was, it was literally winner go home. And we had guys that were, that were locked in, you know, we had D will was playing his best basketball. I, w- I had found my groove playing my best basketball. I remember when Kerr was, you know, had had a huge challenge trying to guard Yao on one end and knock down shots versus on the other end. You know, that's a difficult task because Yao was a load. Um, if you guys can remember him, some of our young listeners and watchers, go Google highlights of Yao Ming and you'll be surprised on how talented he was at his seven foot six size. He was unbelievable. And then we got AK-47 guard T-Mac, which is one of the most gifted offensive players that there ever was in the history of basketball. And so... A lot of the a lot of the scoring responsibilities landed on my shoulders and D Will and we all chipped in. But I, I, in that game, I just told D Will, I don't know why I keep picking and rolling into these seven footers. Like remember, people forget they had the Kimbe Matumbo yep. off the bitch. So they started with Yao Ming at seven six, and they brought in the Kimbe at seven two. And I'm over here rolling into these big mountains. I said, listen, I'm gonna pop this game and just. Trust my jump shot, trust my my work ethic. And I popped the whole night and I was cooking. And it just gave me enough space to operate. My jumper was going and I started going around them and getting a couple of dunks. So it was one of those games where, you know, you had to be strategic. But at the same time, we just wanted it more than they did. Is that 18-footer, that mid-range game a little lost nowadays? Because I feel like you don't see these power forwards in this iteration of the game, how positionless it is shooting that sort of shot. Yeah, the game has changed dramatically. You know, the the bigs are doing things guards can do. The skill set is so impressive. You, I mean, you see what your Joker's doing in, in Denver. You see what Big Embiid is doing in, in Philadelphia, what Giannis is doing in Milwaukee. Like, these bigs can do things that the guards can do, which is so impressive. Like, I wasn't doing that stuff back then. So I, I'm, I'm impressed by the skill set. But it's nowadays you either see a three-point shot or a layup or dunk at the rim. There's no really in-between game. 
there's a lot of older guys, like you look at a CP3 or a Kevin Durant, uh, they love the mid-range game. You know, obviously, uh, DeMar DeRozan's a, a mid-range master over there in Chicago. So there are a couple of old-school guys who do stick to the mid-range game. You see Devin Booker doing it a little bit now, too. Um, but typically, today's NBA is a three-point shot or a dunk. That second round against the We Believe Warriors, and I don't think I've ever been in a building louder than when Derek Fisher comes into game two. What was the playoff atmosphere inside the Delta Center when this was the biggest moment that they've had since the finals? Like, you guys hadn't gotten to this point un uh, until, like, Stockton and Malone era. No, nah, it was incredible, man. I mean, for us, you know, I, I think playing a team that was – think about it. That that team, that Warriors team, was had the biggest upset of the playoffs that year. They just got that knocking off the one seed. I think they were – to the eighth seed, obviously, yeah. and and they had a talented group of guys led by Baron Davis and the rest of that cast, that cast Matt Barnes and Stephen Jackson and Al Harrington. Like they had a squad, but they just literally knocked off the number one seed. So they're coming in super confident. And for us, we just stick. You know, we we followed Jerry Sloan. We stuck to our principles. We ran our offense. We played our defense. We shrunk the floor. Rebounded very well. Guys made huge shots. Um, and that place was rocking, man. We had every person that could we could squeeze into the Delta Center in the building going crazy for us. And those are the atmospheres you live for. Like, I couldn't wait to be a part of that. I couldn't wait to be in that that building that night. And uh, that was one for the history books, man. Well, I think you talked about it that that's pretty unique to have a fan base get behind you at every point because not every NBA city has that where – the arena is packed for December 10th, the same way it is for game two of the Western Conference second round. Like they, they are very fervent here. Nah, we had, we had the best fan base, man. We packed out but all six years. I was in Utah. The gym was packed every single night. I mean, it was, it was, everybody was standing up, especially in that playoff series. Uh, and obviously as we advanced that year too, or look ahead to the, to the Spurs and what have you, but it was, it's, it's a treat to be able to have fans that support you no matter what. And the other thing that's really impressive about what Jerry was able to accomplish, I think he had like 1950 win seasons or 1850 plus win seasons, something like 18 playoff appearance. He had an incredible record of winning, even though, you know, we fell short of trying to win a championship for the organization, but um, they built a winning culture there. And that's why when I was a free agent in 2004, I wanted to go to a winner and Utah was that place. How do you reflect on that Western Conference run? Because it ends with the San Antonio Spurs, clearly an amazing dynasty, a, a team that is pretty legendary with Hall of Famers, three of them, and, and a Hall of Fame head coach. Like they, they have a lot on that team. But how do you reflect on that Western Conference run in 2007? Yeah, I mean, I was proud of us. We fell short. You know, we wanted to win a championship. We thought we had the group that could do it. But to your point, we ran into a team that was clicking on all cylinders, man. It was as I look back and I do reflect on that series and I watch the tape, it's pretty awesome to watch a championship caliber team, a championship team operate. You know, they, the ball doesn't stick. They move it. Uh, there's very little layups that are given by them. Their defense is always on a string. You see the whole ship move. Popovich was a terrific coach. I mean, think about it. He had maybe his third best player coming off the bench just to give the bench mob, you know, some boost and some scoring po potency. And Manu would come in and just terrorize us. He'd come, come at us full speed doing his Euro step and 
hitting threes and and reckless abandon. This is back when he had hair. He was he was unbelievable. So I, I, it was honestly like I know we fell short and we lost that series, but as a fan of basketball, it was incredible to watch a team that was terrific defensively, unselfish offensively. They didn't care who scored the ball, and they they played for one goal to win a championship. And that's that's what we we're trying to get to 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 play similar to how they played. And I respected. I've always respected the San Antonio Spurs organization because, I mean, Pop has talked about how much he modeled the situation after what Utah did with John yep. Carl and the consistency and having sustainability, having stars that reflect the things you want to see in stars. And the fact that Popovich can go one championship where he's playing two bigs to this insane modern offense in 2014 and win championships in both eras, like, the fact that they can change and switch on the top four list of best coaches of all time. Absolutely. I agree. And he's funny. And I'm going to tell you something else about Pop. He knows every great restaurant in every city in the world. He has a book that he wrote down okay. that has all the top restaurants around the globe. The next time you see him, ask him about his book about restaurants. Well, I know he loves Walters here yeah. in Salt Lake. That's yeah. one of, of the restaurants. So, yeah. But I'll have to hear... Uh, the other and a big, big wine collector as well. Looking at the future of the franchise, you come back. You 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 like coming back here. You go to Park City. You recreate in this state. What is it that brings you, Darren Williams, Boris Diaw, other players, back to this spot, even though you've already. It's just amazing, man. Utah is such a great state. Um, I think the more people get a chance to experience it, the more they can recognize the beauty in it. In the summertime, so I was playing golf up there in Park City this summer. I usually come back in, in January, February to snowboard. Park City and Canyons, I'm a big-time snowboarder. I mean, guys, I grew up in Alaska. We're going to go on the mountain. So, um, And then at the same time, I love what they're doing. With I love what Ryan's doing with the Jazz, man. He's rebuilding that family atmosphere that Larry Miller started so long ago. And Jerry Sloan, and that's that's when it's at the top, when it's family first, people want to be around, people want to come back. You know, Ryan's been so inviting since he took over the ownership of inviting us older guys back to hang out with the younger guys. Gave me and Darren a tour of the, of the practice site the other day, a, a couple of weeks ago, and got a chance to to meet some of the new recruits that we just drafted, and got to see my boy JC Jordan Clarkson, who's done a great job in Utah since he's been there. That was my rookie back in L.A. in 2014 and 15, and he's blossomed into a star in this NBA. So I, I like what the, I like Larry Markin in a lot. I think I think uh, he's a really really talented big man. Again, that new version of power forward that can pop to the three point line, also mix it up and go inside, um, can score at all three levels. And then you look at Kessler, man, how how good would it have been for us to have a shot blocking center like that that can move and be agile and guard the pick and roll and recover at the rim? So. I like what they're doing. I'm excited to see Keontae George, who I thought had a great freshman year at Baylor last year. Looking forward to seeing how they can mix everybody up and and, and see how the coach – I think the coach is, is on point. He knows what he's doing. So I'm looking forward to this year with the Jazz. You got to get back. You got to be here for, for opening night. I know you got stuff going on. I know your sons are, are running around, but you got to get here for opening night because that's going to be yeah. crazy against the Kings. Absolutely. And they're a great team too, so it's going to be a great battle. I'm going to try to get there. Guys, my kids are being recruited all over the country. I'm a, I'm, I'm a dad now, and I'm taking them to, to campus visits and stuff. But if I can get there for opening night, 
I'll be there. If not, I'll catch a really good one coming up in, in November, January. Do the kids know how cold you used to be on the floor? How often oh, yeah, they you snap those clips? Yeah, yeah I see, they see my high. And it's funny now because now that they're they're in high school, I see them doing some of my moves every now and then, and I'll catch them and be like, they'd be like, Dad, I got that from you. And I'd be like, okay. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's fun. It's cool being a dad. I'll tell you that. It's cool being a dad. What kind of sports parent are you? Are you are you talking about the coaches? Are you criticizing things? Are you chirping at reps? Are you going at them? I'll be honest. I do my best to just sit back and chill, but there are moments where I got to whisper something to a referee respectfully, right. respectfully. But uh, no, nah, I let the coaches coach for sure. I'm, I'm, not, I'm never going to be the guy that's in the coach's ear. My, I always coach my kids at home after the games are over, before the games start. But every once in a while, I may take a good look at a referee and be like, come on now. But other than that- And I'm one? Do you yell and one? I'll be yelled and one a few times. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Absolutely. I'd be like, and one! Like that. Every shot counts. Why'd you write it? For as difficult as life has been and, and the trials and tribulations, I feel like there are really funny parts in this book as well. The Prince story, everybody knows. The Beijing story, everybody knows. But like, there are funny parts- amongst all all the things that you go through in life. Yeah, I just thought it was time. I'm 41. I'll be 42 soon. And I really wanted to uh, to just tell my story. You know, I think there's, it's an inspiring story that can help kids out, that can even help parents out. Like, one of the things I went through um, when I was a 12-year-old, I was in seventh grade. You know, you go into your class and the teacher says, hey, everybody write down what you want to do when you grow up. And so I was like, I want to go to the NBA. That's what I want to do. So I put it on my paper and she told me that I should lower my expectations because the chances of you, you know, coming from Alaska and going to the NBA are slim. Maybe, you know, think about working at a gas station or working at the local grocery store. And I'm coming from a household where my parents allowed me to dream, right? I'm allowed to, you know, go after dreams and they want me to, to, to dream for, aim for the sky and see what happens. And then I have my teacher who has such an influence on us, especially at middle school, tell me that that's not realistic for you. So I decided to use that as motivation and keep going because I wanted it badly. And so my message to everybody out there is to go after your dream. You're going you're gonna to run into roadblocks. You're going to run into to barriers at times. Do you have the fortitude to bust through those barriers and keep going? Or will you pivot and end up working for somebody else's dream? Because you know, ultimately life is short. If you have something that you're serious about, sometimes God will test you to see how bad you really want it. Keep going. You know, don't don't listen to that seventh grade teacher that tells you you can't do it. Listen to that voice inside you that tells you that you can. Well, I'm glad you wrote it because you've been across so many great players. LeBron, Kobe, Coach K, you know, so many of the greats, Prince. Prince is a great, even yeah. though uh, he completely took over your house and made it his. <laughs> uh, but... Like so many greats have you've been around and you lived a, a charm life. So I'm, I'm really glad that you wrote it. Thank you very much. Carlos Boozer, one of the best to ever wear a jazz uniform on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me.